now sitting at the wave table. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the wave table episode 23. This episode is featuring Nick Wilson, who is actually or was a lecturer of mine. How are you going, Nick? Good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, I'm very pleased to have you on because, like, I feel like I learned a lot from you as well as the other lecturers at SAE and just the, the combination of all your different teaching styles has kind of like, I feel like it's helped to kickstart my career as a musician. So yeah, right. I really well, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, well, it's, it's great to hear that. And I mean, I should also mention that us lecturers learn a lot from the students, you know, we get like <laughs> lots of like new ideas coming in. So, so by, by getting, you know, ideas from you guys, we don't sort of stay just stuck in our own kind of um, ways, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a two-way thing, I think. Yeah, I had a um, a, a previous lecturer on um, Will Hatton a couple of episodes ago, and he said that uh, sometimes when he was teaching, he would have like a full game plan of like, this is what we're going to learn, right? But then he goes into the classroom presents it and then all the or not necessarily kids but all the students are like oh we already know how to do that i want to learn how to do this and then someone else in the back yells i want to do this and yeah i remember that was like just exactly the scenario with <laughs> multiple people just screaming out multiple different things that they wanted to learn <laughs> yeah yeah can get a bit chaotic sometimes but that's all part of the fun is there any like uh is there anything you do to kind of combat that or is it pretty much just trying to know a bit of everything? Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, sometimes you just got to kind of gauge the room and see if, if the plan that you've got, you know, it could be that some people, act, you know, it's the, it's the noisiest kind of loud mouths in the class will sometimes kind of give the sort of I already know this kind of line and maybe they yeah maybe they don't really they're just I don't know it's it's and right it's it's almost just a bit of a hard one. Um so you know you try to kind of customize and go with the flow to a degree, but then you've got to be mindful that just because some louder people know stuff, maybe some quieter people don't and you've got to just juggle it a bit, I suppose. It's it's instinct. Yeah. It's an instinct thing, I suppose. And like you said, like even if someone says they know something, maybe though they don't know it to the extent you do. So just digging that little bit deeper, I guess, to find out the true extent of their knowledge yeah. uh, is helpful. Definitely. So Definitely. um I wanted to jump into your musical journey in its entirety. No, obviously that would take a long time to uh <laughs> to uh, explain, but give us a brief rundown of like where you started with music and your journey up until now. Yeah, um, I suppose my earliest memories are that we had a piano in the house um, that was my grandmother's and she didn't really play it anymore and shipped it down so that we could, so the kids could have a play on the piano sort of thing. So it was kind of sitting in the lounge room and I banged on it a bit and showed some interest. So at about the age of nine, um, my parents got me into piano lessons and that kind of drifted along for a few years. I mean, I was kind of into it, but I wasn't like any kind of great 
musical genius or anything. I was yeah. like sort of mid, middle, you know, I didn't practice enough and stuff like that. But um, when I was like about 15, like, you know, I had friends who started to form, want to form bands and stuff like that. So mm. like I went over to a friend's house who didn't play an instrument as far as I knew, but he had this bass guitar sitting in the corner and I said, oh, I didn't even know that there was a difference between a bass guitar and a normal guitar. <laughs> but, but I said, oh, you're playing guitar. And he said, well, bass actually. And then he said, oh, well, well um, how about you play the synthesizer? Because it was the 80s and if you played keyboards, right. it was kind of expected that you'd be playing a synthesizer. Um, yeah. So, and he had someone he knew who had a synthesizer. So we, you know, okay, yep, cool, I'll play synthesizer. So I told my parents I wanted to get a synthesizer and started, you know, the weekend job in the bakery so I could save some <laughs> funds to buy one. And um, yeah, they were like really expensive back then, right? Yeah, I think the one I got was the Casio CZ-1000. That was my first synthesizer, which I think was an 85, I think that came out. And um, by memory, it was about $400 in like mid-80s kind of money. Um, but, um, yeah, and then a few years later, you know, forming, you know, forming bands and getting another synthesizer and another one, you know, expanding the collection. Um <laughs> And then, and then members of bands kind of dropped away. Like it was the sort of initial lineup was guitar, bass, drums, singer, and me on synthesizer. But gradually, you know, if the drummer, we couldn't get a new drummer, it's like, okay, get a drum machine, um, get a sequencer, <laughs> or get a sampler. So I started to get more into the technology and um, cool. getting more electronic music minded um, as I got into my early 20s. Um, and then I studied music um, at tertiary level at Melbourne Uni. I thought I should probably try to take it seriously and get a proper music degree because right. I was earning money by teaching piano lessons and also doing a little bit, little bit of playing piano in restaurants, stuff like that. So I thought, okay, get a music degree and get a bit more knowledgeable. So that and that was a major. I was majoring in composition because I figured that was a kind of path to go to because I like to just be creative was my main focus. Yeah. Like I wasn't so much about becoming the greatest classical pianist or anything like that. I mean, I mean, I didn't mind playing the piano, but it wasn't ever going to be an area for me to excel in. There were always going to be heaps better piano players around than me. Right. And I think a lot of people, they just want to be creative as well. But then these days with how easy it is to access doors, they get caught up in like the mixing side of things. And so I guess it's kind of similar. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's a lot of um, the emphasis. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of aware of this from teaching at SAE that there's a lot of um, emphasis about how to um, produce properly and it's all about how you're meant to use a compressor or how you're meant to EQ. Yeah these sounds and that's and and it's useful information but it does tend to um get a bit out of proportion sometimes with actually just being creative and having fun yeah i agree like at the end of the day there's so many songs in the world that could have been mixed just that five or ten percent better but it doesn't matter because the creative side of things was just so amazing that people don't care about that five or ten percent yeah. mix optimization Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, 
What got you into the sound art side of things as opposed um, to music? I, I don't know exactly like the line between those two, but yeah, do you want to like give yeah. us kind of the difference? Well, yeah, it's a tricky one because, um, well, in terms of the difference, I mean, some people would argue there is no difference and other people would say, right. no, there definitely is. Um, it's probably got to do with context. So if you create something to be listened to in a very specific context, so maybe in a gallery or let's say, um, I don't know, let's, let's say walking over a bridge, we we're going to put in some... Um, speakers and have some, I don't know, tinkly sounds playing or let's say we were going to, you know, it would like it's kind of more like situational, like sound art yeah. for a specific um, place or time or context, whereas music is, um, is um, more like something you could maybe, you know, depending on where you like to listen to music and what you like to listen to, you might put it on at a club if you're a DJ or you might listen to mm. it on your headphones when you're going for a jog. Um, so it ha uh, has that, whereas you know, the sound art is more specific. Um, but it's also kind of tends to be more abstract sound, whereas in music we expect melodies, um, rhythms. That we, we've got certain expectations about, about how we call something music, although that gets yeah. argued about and contested. Um, so, so, um, as I got more into synthesizers and learnt about stuff that wasn't just to do with, um, keys and chords and, um, how to move your fingers up and down the keyboard, but it was more about how to, um, manipulate waveforms and, um, you know, envelopes and all the things that you get into when you program sounds or create your own sounds in a synthesizer, then you start to think of sound as something a little bit more abstract and then yeah. that gives you maybe a way of thinking that you can apply in a sound art context, if that makes sense. Mm. I guess that a lot of modern music uh, that focuses specifically on sound design is kind of like right on that line between sound art and music, right? Because there's a lot of songs that m people wouldn't really listen to at home like they're specifically created for club scenarios. And like, I guess that's kind of similar to how sound art is specifically created for like art galleries or like a grand opening for a new bridge or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, maybe that's, that's an example of how these categories are blending more and more. I mean, you know, mm. like, like you could, you could be commissioned to write, a piece of music specifically to be listened to on headphones or um, yeah, or, or you could just decide to mix your track because you expect that people are going to listen to it more on headphones or maybe you mix or create something because you want it to be a radio hit. So you might um, mix it to make sure the, the vocals and melody come through really clearly and maybe the actual song structure is really um, um, disciplined in terms of verse and chorus and nothing going for too long because you want someone to play it in that four-minute slot on the radio. So, yeah. so it's kind of the same thing, really, isn't it? You know, music is getting more more like sound art and um, sound art kind of bleeds into music. <laughs> um, have you get, got any thoughts on people who mix their songs for phones? Like, 
Yeah. Um, speakers. <laughs> yeah, not really. I mean, I suppose it's something I haven't gotten that much into other than I, sp- I suppose, you know, speakers are a little bit different because they're going to fill up the room and you're going to get, I mean, like that might affect how you mix the stereo balance. So, so maybe for headphones you might go less extreme with the panning because it's going to be so extreme anyway that the speakers are on each mm. ear. Um, but then other people might say, oh, well, no, it's headphones I, and I, and people want, want to hear all this stuff in the headphones. So I don't know. <laughs> it's so. that tough balance, right? Like yeah. whatever you do, there's always someone at the other end saying it, I want it this way. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I, I don't really mix with headphones. Um but I would probably check my mixes with headphones. Yeah, and um, But whether I should be more mindful about thinking, well, this is going to be more of a headphone sort of album or something, maybe that's something I should consider. I don't know. It's hard mm. to say. Yeah, perhaps. Because yeah. I guess there's like, there's definitely types of music where you just want to like lay down, chuck the headphones on and listen to it. And then, you know, there's music where you chuck it on big speakers and you go crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's something for people to think about, like be mindful of what uh, kind of what context people are going to be listening to your music in when you're creating it and mix accordingly, I guess. Mm. And I mean, the, 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 the situation that I'm in um, these days being a, you know, middle-aged parent uh, is um, that if I put something on on the stereo playing through the speakers, I'm probably going to have, like, um, kids running around distracting me and talking and, and it's not going <laughs> to be a focused listen. And the only times I get, I get to have that kind of focused listening is if I'm, um, you know, when I'm coming home from work and I've got my stuff on my phone or whatever. And so that's – and it's probably the case that people – today are listening much more on headphones than what they used mm. to. Um, I would definitely agree. Yeah, so it's worth worth considering that as one aspect when you're creating your music, yeah. For sure. So we've spoken about your music a little bit and I assume that your music was among the first releases on your label Clan Analog? Um, funnily enough, no. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I didn't form the label. The the label was formed in the early 90s and not really even as a label. It was formed in Sydney by um, a guy called Brendan Palmer, hooked up with a few other people um, and basically formed an electronic music collective in 1992. And they started meeting at a a pub and kind of talking about synths and things. And um, then they started putting on nights just at like local bars, and uh, and then they thought, oh, let's let's put out a, a record, you know, which was like a compilation mm. vinyl EP of the artists that were in this kind of collective, and that um, and then Brendan went down and got people in Canberra to form a branch, and then people in Melbourne formed a branch, and it became this nationwide sort of thing, and that was in the. I mean, it seems it's quite different now than what it was then because back then it was very, um, Australia was very sort of rock in its musical scene. Yeah. And uh, if you were into like synths and electronic music, it was a bit more unusual. So it was kind of like, um, yeah, basically an underground sort of collective for people into electronic music. And um, 
and and before we got really too heavily into all the different genres that we have today. Um, mm. But yeah, so I didn't actually really join up until about five years later for, with Clan Analog okay. in Melbourne, and then um, and then people came and went, and um, different people that were involved with running the label um, like moved away, went overseas, you know, settled down, whatever it might have been, and I found that. Um, I mean, I was kind of one of the main movers and shakers by the kind of late 90s in terms of the Melbourne end of things. Like, put it, if we had an album out, I'd organise the launch in Melbourne for it. Um, cool. And then it just got to around about early 2000s and and um, it was sort of fell to me to kind of be the, the, the inverted commas label manager, which makes it sound like it's <laughs> some kind of real job, but it's not. It's just, um, <laughs> it's just, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be the person that tries to coordinate all this. So, wow. yeah, and I had a couple of tracks on compilation albums. I put together a couple of the compilation albums, but it wasn't until, um, I don't know, about three years ago that I actually put out one of my own albums on Clam Analog. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was in 2017. A, so, yeah. So, yeah, so you, you were like essentially doing work for the label for a long time before you actually put out your own stuff on it. I'm very surprised by that, actually. Yeah, well, the funny thing is it's like if you think what's the motivation for putting in all this time and effort to keep a label going, and I think a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, it's so that you have an outlet for your own music, you know, because because mm. because. Back when I was like, you know, in my twenties, it was like the great dream was to get signed to a label. You know, that was what everyone, yeah. every artist wanted, so that that would be the pathway to fame and fortune. And uh, and then it gets to a point, well, um, I need to get my own label, so I don't, I can just, I have that outlet. <laughs> but the only problem is then, like, twenty five years goes by when you're just putting all this time into other people's music and um, right. And it's like, oh, I better actually get something of my own out to make this all uh, <laughs> worthwhile because that was part of the reason why I did it in the first place. Uh, that's uh, interesting because, yeah, I know someone who at the moment who I kind of feel is going through the same thing with running a label and then just now starting to uh, get their own music going again. Um, so I wanted to ask about the name Clan Analog because – it kind of implies that it's only analog music that is allowed on the label or uh, what was the other word you used for it? Don't know. Con, com, not community. Oh, collective. Yeah, anyway. Collective. Yeah, collective. Yeah. yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Well, um, well yeah. I mean, the, it, it, I think it came about because at the time in the early 90s, um, it was it was this time when um, the ma- mainstream artists were using digital synthesizers, and it was um, and and there was all this like cheap old analog synths that you could get at like cash converters and stuff, which were basically was early eighties gear that you could just pick up cheap. So young young people, like you know, back then I was what twenty two or something. Um, were, were kind of into this new kind of techno stuff that was coming out, whereas the the older um, the old scene, the the, the mainstream was um, they were kind of trying to do like you know pop and rock and using these new digital synths and things. That was the sort mm. of so so if if you 
if you were into all this old analog stuff that was um, that you could do all this really cool techno music with, um, or house music, or acid house, or whatever it was, depending on what you were into, that was um, a kind of a it was like an underground badge of honor, like, hey, I'm into analog, <laughs> you know. Um, right. So, so that was um, how the clan analog thing came. And, and actually, I think the clan, well, there was, a, there was a thing called the cave clan back then. I don't, I don't know if it still exists or not, but it's basically this, like, like you used to see spray painted around, um, like graffiti at, like, train stations and stuff, like cave clan, spelt, right. um, I think it was a kind of with a C or a K, but basically they were this sort of secretive bunch of people that would um, explore the drains of Melbourne. They would actually go down with like oh, tor- wow. tor- torches and helmets and stuff and they had map all these maps and it would be this sort of not, you know, not really legal thing to go exploring the drains. And I think it might have been influenced by that. So, so let's right. have something like that, but it's like for electronic music. And there was also mm. uh, that you could actually, with a Roland synthesizer, what the early clan analog artists did up in Sydney was that they got gaffer tape at their gigs and put them uh, where it said Roland on the on the back of the synth. And you put gaffer <laughs> tape over it, and you could turn it just into the word clan. Right. So like the, the, <laughs> so, uh, so you said so the O the the R O L A N D. We'll get rid of the D. Get rid of the R. And just turn the the O into a C by adding a little bit of guff onto there. That, <laughs> so, so that was I don't know which of those ideas came first, but that was the general um, influence. But, but uh, yeah, there's no no rule about having to use analog. I mean, most of the clan analog artists don't use analog. Well, some of them do, but it's not. It's just yeah, it's whatever. Like it's just it's more right. of an, it's more of an attitude. You know, it's more of a um, gotcha. philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I guess the 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 wording reflected the attitude at the time of the creation, but like things have changed over the years. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you ever get students who want to release on Clan Analog? Um, not so much, but final. I mean, occasionally I might get a student to, like, you know, not occasionally, like every now and then I get a student to help out with, like, say, mixing something or mastering or um, cool. something like that. So I do, you know, get get student input from time to time. And um, an artist that we're currently looking at releasing is actually a student somewhere else at a different um, music school, um, music production school. So, um don't know. Maybe they'll, maybe now that you've mentioned it, I'll get some more <laughs> more calls. Maybe now that you put the word out, yeah. <laughs> I um, I, I'm sure I don't know anyone who's in like your current classes, but on the off chance that they're watching, yeah, hit Nick up about uh, releasing on Clan Analog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so are there any like common themes that your students tend to struggle with? Because I feel like pretty much everyone has like these similar learning patterns where you kind of learn something and then you go too far with it and then you kind of come back. Um, And I feel like there just might be like one or two things that kind of stand out among most or a lot of your students. If you could. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I do sometimes bring up with the students is just um, 
getting everything too perfect. Like, Mm. I mean, it's what we spoke about a little bit earlier about um, the emphasis on what's correct production and mixing and and all those technical things. And and because the place I teach at SAE is fairly, it's kind of oriented towards audio production, maybe without so much of an emphasis necessarily on music. I mean, although music is part of that, but um, so... So, you know, I'm always interested in the creativity and the art and that um, tends to kind of work against the grain of um, technical production because if you learn technical production, you're basically studying a lot of um, models of what has been done and what is considered industry standard and what is successful, whereas with art and creativity, you're that's kind of like all about breaking the mould and trying out new things. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I was just gonna say, uh, like being creative at, as opposed to learning the whole specific mixing side of things, it not only allows you to like sound more unique and you know be free of the restraints of like traditional mixing or whatever, but it also just allows you to put out more music because like you were saying, like the perfectionism, uh, people get caught up in that and like trying to make every single song perfect and they just never end up putting any music out because of that. Yeah, and, and back when, when I was your age, like in my mid-20s, um, it, was, it was quite hard to record or finish producing a track because um, hard disk recording hadn't really come in yet. So... So if we wanted to record something, we had to pay for studio time. Mm. Um, so which meant that you'd only record like two tracks a year, you know, because you'd be saving, <laughs> you know, saving up your money to get back into the studio. Um, and what would tend to happen is you'd come home that night and listen to it back because you'd been in the studio for 12 hours, like recording and mixing and stuff, and then you'd come home and you'd listen to it and there'd be all these things that you would that you were unhappy about in terms of the mix, but you sort of just had to, um, and, you know, if I look back, there's probably things I should have released that I didn't because I was thinking, oh, no, we need to go and record that again in six months' time when we've yeah. saved up another, you know, bit of money for it, when actually yeah. now, now I listen back, I think, oh, it sounds really cool, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I mean, I think perfection is, one of the things I do sometimes say to the students is perfection is the enemy of art because as soon as something mm. is perfected, it's kind of like dead, it's, it's, it's kind of locked up and, and finished and then there's, there's no more creativity. So, Right. I love that quote, perfection is the enemy of art. That's great. Um, but, yeah, like going off how you were talking about how you had to save up for six months to get back in the studio just because you wanted to fix a few things, like to like think about how many more songs you could have written in that time that would like be even better, like, or not necessarily better, but more suited to your current feelings of creativity. Um, And I think just modern producers need to take a page out of that, that book. Um, Just focus on being creative. Uh, It's okay if your mix is 90% done, just release it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so since Going off your wise words and the fact that you... How long have you been teaching now, actually? 
Well, I've been teaching for since, I don't know, for about 30-something years I've been teaching. But, right. <laughs> yeah, because I started teaching piano when I was 17 as a way of earning money after school and stuff. Um, I've been teaching, like, at college, like, tertiary level for um, about 10 years now. Sweet. Was, think, uh, was yeah. teaching piano your first job or did you have other jobs before that? Um, oh, well, like, well, I, you know, did the, like, working in the bakery on the weekends, which I think I mentioned oh, yeah, before that's right. and all that kind of like, But yeah. then, when, but yeah, when, when I was, like, 17 and finished school, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard that you can earn a bit of money from teaching piano, like, like it's about two or three times the hourly rate of that kind of shit job in the bakery that I just had. So, yeah. um, but but it, for quite a few years, you know, it was kind of juggling. Like I'd have a day job working like in an office or something, and just do a few lessons in the evening. And then I was playing piano gotcha. at a restaurant on Friday and Saturday nights. Um, so considering um, considering you've got teaching piano since seventeen, and like ten years of tertiary. Uh, lecturing now have you got any advice for people who aspire to be uh teachers of some variety of the musical fields um i suppose just um get stuck into it i mean like like when i started when i was 17 i, I remember like some somehow some I put an ad in the paper and some mother brought around her three kids and and it was like, and I was just thinking, oh, you know, do I actually know how to teach piano? I, you know, I didn't really have much of a clue as to how to actually impart right. that knowledge. And I, and I taught them for about, I don't know, four months or something. And then they lost interest and, and, you know, and then, and the teacher, and the, the mum sort of stopped the lessons, but it was like, and I was just thinking, yeah, because, because they were probably the shittest lessons that anyone's ever had <laughs> learning piano, but, but it, at least it just gets the ball rolling and then you improve. So, um, uh, and it, you know, once you get going with it and you start to find ways of, um, you know, imparting the knowledge and having fun with it, um, you know, it's a, it's a great way to, to uh, earn a living. So, and I suppose it keeps you, like I said before about getting, in, you know, learning from the students, you know, it keeps you in touch with um, new ways of getting inspired and getting ideas. You know, you're sort of, you're in that creative environment Um Whereas, you know, I mean, a lot of people my age um, who were great musicians, but they sort of went and got a job as, a, as something else, whatever, you know, working in a bank or, or what, mm. whatever, whatever it might be, it could be anything, but, and gradually they drift away from, 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 you know, music and creativity and stuff. And sometimes they come back to it later in life. But, um, I mean, the only thing you've got to um, consider is, um, the kind of burnout that can happen if you're all day you're um, talking about music and you're um, yeah you know teaching and working with students with their music projects and you can come home and just think well I don't want to I just want to have a complete break from I'm just sick of all that music stuff that that, that can yeah. that can happen so that's the kind of you got to balance that that um you know yeah. so, so for some people it works better to not have their day job being anything to do with music and that can help some people to remain creative out of their work time 
So it, it kind of depends on your your personality and exactly. Yeah, I definitely feel like that phrase. It's like uh, do what you love and you don't work a day in your life. I I definitely don't think that applies to everyone at all. Um, just like what you've just said is like a perfect example because you love music so much, like it's your whole life. And then you have these days where you go home and you don't want anything to do with it. So I guess, uh, yeah, like you said, being aware of who you are as a person, what your goals are. Like if you just want to be involved in music, it doesn't matter in what way, then I guess teaching is definitely a really good job. But if you want to have like, if you really want to make the most out of your career as an artist who has an alias or yeah, just an artist, then I guess being a teacher can hinder that because you might not want to work on your music once you get home. Hmm. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, but yeah, it, go, it depends on the personality and it depends yeah. on, it goes in waves as well. You know, you, you, go, mm. through, you go through cycles. Yeah, you know, for sure. Sometimes you've got to take a break from things to build up your, your, your um, enthusiasm again or your inspiration or, or whatever. And there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Yeah, I like to do um, not not long breaks, but sometimes I have breaks where I work more on the visual side of things and then that just, you know, gets inspiration going and makes me want to go straight back into music. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So on top of writing, uh, sorry, on top of running a label and teaching music and having a family, uh, you've been studying a master's degree and writing a book. How on earth have you managed to balance all these things? Um, with difficulty uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, being able to, you know, go through times of not having a lot of sleep and, and, <laughs> and a certain degree of stubbornness, I suppose. Um, but, but also, like, like, for example, you mentioned writing the book. So I've just, um, like, I've, that, that book is, has just come out. Um, but it's, um, well, first of all, I didn't write it. I edited it. So it's a whole bunch yeah, of different true. people. Um, and I wrote like one chapter. But um, so, but it's kind of been chugging along for about a few years, that project. So mm. sometimes, um, you know, sometimes when you keep projects going a little bit on the back burner, um, um, it's kind of easy to just kind of let them kind of fall by the wayside. And, yeah. and, but I suppose I've got a little bit of that um, stubbornness that I just kind of keep nudging things along until they're finished, even if it's just a little bit. So even if you just say, well, um, every Wednesday night for two hours, I'm going to work on this thing that has been going, this project that's been running for the last two years, but I'm just going to, you know, just yeah, every, every set bit of time in my week, that's what I devote to that thing. And so you're just right. kind of pu pushing those projects along, which means things can take a while to come to fruition, but, um, but you know, hopefully they get there. Um, mm. So, and, you know, making things kind of um, relate to other things. So, for example, you mentioned a study. So, so my, for my master's, I'm um, at 
I, I'm doing that at Box Hill Institute and it's quite an encouraging of experimental music there. So I did an experimental kind of performance as um, not, not last year but the year before as one of my like assignments I had to do. Like we had to do an experimental performance and I did this thing of sampling the audience's social media posts. Oh, in, yeah. In a live <laughs> thing. And it was just like a kind of an assignment. But then last year I got it included in a thing called the Jolt Sonic Arts Festival at Footscray Community Arts Centre and I'm going to be doing it in the Fringe Festival, Melbourne Fringe, as a street mm. performance in two weeks. So, so you know, you can get these things and you can develop them further and you can, um, yeah, so, so, so if you're doing lots of different things, you try to make them integrate in some way if it, yeah. you know, if, if, that, if that works. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, helpful tip. And I also like the how you said uh, you did like two hours of work per week uh, for the book. I feel like that's a really good approach because obviously editing a book is a daunting task, especially uh, you. this was like the first book you've ever published, right? Yeah, yeah. So I imagine that that must have been like a whole new like thing to learn. Uh and very intimidating for most people. So, you know, most people might look at that and think, how the hell am I going to do this? Like, there's no way. But if you just segment out a small amount of time per week, uh, you know, it'll allow you to keep chugging along, as you say, and then the project does eventually come to fruition, even though it only took a couple hours per week it's not really that big of a time investment on a per week basis but um over a while you do still get there and i think a lot of people can take something from this because we tend to start all these things and then just the i guess we look at the big picture and we can't really see the path to get there and so the path to get there is really to just make small incremental uh small increments and you will eventually get there. It's just a matter of thinking, what do I need to do right now rather than what is everything I need to do to eventually get there? <laughs> For sure. And, um, yeah, it's also about um, kind of like, same kind of thing, like breaking it down into the smaller components and saying, oh, well, I don't yeah. quite know about how to actually get it turned into the finished thing. But what I do know about is how to email all the writers and say, hey, please get your exactly. chapters to me by this date. And then once you've done that, okay, now I've just got to read one every week and get a red pen out, print it and make any edits and just break it break it down very much step by step and just get one step at a time along the path. Because, yeah. yeah, I will kind of um... – if I don't do that, I'll essentially have a list of things that I need to do in my head. And then I think of another thing and then one thing goes out the other side of my head. And then I think of that ag again and then something else goes out. <laughs> it's like, it's just impossible. Like can't retain that, all that information at the same time. So take it slow, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and also make, make notes, you know, like, yeah, if, yeah, you know, because if there's, there's too much stuff to, to hold in the brain at one time, you know, have a, I don't know, spreadsheet or, or something, you know, it's all different project management 
tools today that she can, you know, we don't have to remember mm. everything all the time, do we? We can just go back to our notes and see where something was, was left off and, and just continue, continue from there. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately I wasn't able to read the entire book because it's very expensive. <laughs> uh, but um, I did have a read of the preview and so I can't speak on the entirety of its content contents. So would you like to give us a, um, a quick like plug and overview of the book? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just kind of hold it up. Here it is, <laughs> in, Interpreting the Synthesizer, Meaning Through Sonics. Um, it's, it's following up from a um, couple of events I organised at SAE a few years ago called the Synthposiums. Um, so it's kind of like um, conferences about synthesizers, basically. Um, so we had a few um, presenters. Oh, a couple of presenters came from overseas, which was great, one from England and one from New Zealand. Um, and a couple of people presented um, on, um, on Skype, I think it was, from, from London, um, and as well as some local people. Um, so it's just all different aspects of, of synthesizers. And the theme was meaning through sonics. So it's kind of like about, well, okay, there's a lot of um, stuff out there about the technicalities of synthesizers, but what, why do we think that synths are cool? Or why do you think that right. they're not cool, if that's what you think? You know, it's, a, it's kind of a subjective thing, but there's an idea about why we think an electric guitar might be cool, but there hasn't been that much of a much of a look at synthesizers in that kind of way so that was the um the idea behind it um so we've got a bunch of different interpretations of that so um one guy david prescott steve for example local melbourne um artist he, he wrote a chapter about um gear acquisition syndrome so this it's been something <laughs> discussed in like um, about this sort of people that just collect more and more gear but they may or may not actually do anything with that gear. It's just this yeah. this idea, okay, once I have that one more synth, I'm going to be able to just make this amazing record, but it's always deferred. So he did a sort of a psychological study of that mindset as his chapter. And then, um, yeah, these, these guys in, in London wrote a chapter about um, – modular synths and just the idea of live performance and what what is live performance with modular synthesizers um and then another another guy did a chapter about um synths in hip-hop and when like hip-hop shifted from being very much focused on sampling to starting to mm. actually more and more incorporate synths and what what was it about um about that time that caused hip-hop artists to actually kind of because it was very much a thing with hip-hop that it was all about sampling and, and um like why was there that shift so there's just a few different themes explored by different writers in the book cool um so the story of how synthesizers came to be is a very interesting one because since it's not seen as a traditional instrument really um i feel like people were very hesitant to adopt it would you agree with that yeah i mean i think there's part of that and part of um part of the kind of complexity of it so um right maybe maybe some artists being a bit scared about the 
you know, do they have to understand physics and electronics and stuff to, to use yeah. those instruments? And uh, for some people that that is a attractive thing because maybe they've got a, a way of thinking about sound that, um, that you know, is, is sort of um, that mindset kind of works. Um, I mean, there were, you know, if you think about the late 60s when the, the Moog synth became, you know, was the first sort of mass-produced synthesizer, um, I mean, there was like an early album by George Harrison where, um, you know, he, he got hold of one of these Moog synthesizers uh, because it was sort of like a hip thing. Like I think Mick Jagger got one and George Harrison got himself one. And um, But I think his his album, he more or less just sort of paid someone to come over and do the album for him because he didn't really know how to, <laughs> how to like work this device. Um, <laughs> and then um, in the 70s, you started to get more synthesizers that had that were kind of relatively straightforward to use if you, mm. even if you didn't quite know what you were doing, but at least had a keyboard and you'd get a sound reasonably quickly and easily. That was um, the mini Moog in early 70s was really the first synth that was a little bit more accessible in that way. So, um, but yeah, in the late 70s, early 80s with post-punk and new wave music, it becomes quite a thing for... Um, for like those artists who weren't musically proficient, like because with punk music it was always about where well, you don't have to be in a virtuoso musician to make to play in a punk band, and that when that attitude kind of carried through into post-punk music and new wave, that became um, you know all the early eighties synth pop bands. It was it was none of it was about being a great musician. It was just um, you know can you get like a catchy melody catchy simple melody on this synth and it yeah. just kind of had this great new sound it was all about a new sound at that time um, um yeah i i can totally understand how people would have been like intimidated by the keyboardless synths that were just buttons knobs and wires um would you say that the mini moog essentially was like the breaking point where you know, it started to catch on for mass adoption because of the added keyboard? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the original Moog had a keyboard. That was the first synth, well, the first device to be called a synth that had a keyboard, a piano-style right. keyboard was the original Moog. Um, but that was still quite hard, like hard to get it going with a sound because you had to, um, right. like, you, you play the key. I mean, there's one a mess Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio in, in North Melbourne, which I had a go on one time, and it was quite hard to get a sound out of it. You really had to get all the cabling in the right right order to actually get oh, something Lord. out of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> but then the then the um, the mini moog was like it's all kind of routed in a way that you just play and you get a sound, cool. and then and then you can alter that sound, but you still at least get a sound even if you don't know what to do with all the knobs. Um, okay. So yeah, that was certainly a breakthrough. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, more the ease of access for sounds. Uh, yeah. In combination with having a keyboard, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. Um. So yeah, what's up next for you with uh, the book done, and uh, <laughs> the how how close are you to finishing the masters actually? 
Um, still a little by, little by away. I mean, like we said before about um, having things chug along on the back burner a bit. I mean, because I'm, you know, working full time and family and everything, I'm, you know, it's it's not a fast thing. I'm just doing like one or two subjects at a time. So it's um, going to take mm. I've been doing it for three years already and I think it will take me another two years to finish it. Okay. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I, I sort of can't let myself worry about that. I'm just going to, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the main thing is to sort of enjoy the journey as well. You know, you've got to, yeah. you can't, if you're too focused on the end goal, um, but the actual thing itself isn't that enjoyable or interesting, then yeah. then that's going to, that can be disheartening. So you sort of got to um, just sort of appreciate it as you go along. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not stressing too much about how long it's taking or trying not to I'm just, um, okay, that's, that's the way it's just kind of going along and, you know, it'll get there. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. If you don't enjoy the process, then why, like why even do it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's up next for you now that the book's done? Um, well, I've got a, um, a couple of little things. Like I mentioned, I'm doing this um, performance in a couple of weeks' time in The Fringe, which is an online streamed performance where I'm going to sample um, the social media posts of the audience. So it's basically... And people, people can just find that by typing in The Fringe on Facebook? Yeah, and it's called I Am Sharing. That's, that's, the, name, that's the name of my show. So, so I Am Sharing. So, yep. it's, um, so basically I just kind of sit sit there and wait for the audience to, um, I mean, there's instructions come up for them, but, but, but uh, it's that they can share me anything to a social, you know, via Facebook or Twitter or whatever that has songs that's got some kind of sound in it. And then I just sample that and build it, build, build with it, just grabbing all the stuff from the audience. And I don't preview anything. I don't listen to it and say, <laughs> oh, well, I think that sound, I'll, I'll just see if that's all right to use. I just sample it and it's in there and then I've got to yeah. mould it and manipulate it on the fly. So that's um, that's a show. I'm doing three three performances in two weeks' time and then my plan is, um, yeah, I might, I'll probably try to record all three nights and then maybe edit, get the best bits and maybe get an album out of it. Um if, if it turns awesome. out, turns out, you know, turns out well. Um, and then I'm the week after that, I'm doing another show in the Fringe Festival called um, Drones for an Empty Space. And that's, um, that's with a whole bunch of different artists, um, but it's to launch the new Clay Analog compilation album, which is called, um, Dis- it's called Distance. Um, so distance sounds from an empty place, or no, sounds for an empty place, and that's um, like a compilation of drone tracks. So um, we're going to do a performance um, online on on Twitch, which will be um, um, kind of like about eight artists in different locations. Some some in Melbourne, some in Sydney. There's one one in Canada. And we're just going to um, be jamming together. Like different artists will come in and out at different times. And because it's right. drone, because it's drone music, it doesn't matter if it's not quite perfectly in sync because it's just um, layers of synth noises and, and stuff like that. So, um, and that'll go for about that, that's like a five-hour performance that that we'll be doing. Um, awesome. Yeah, and that and that album is actually out coming out this this week. I think the end of the week. Um, 
of which I have one track on it um, with a project called City Frequencies, um, which is a collaboration with myself and um, a guy called Matt Adair. And we've, for this particular track, we've sampled, I mean, what, what Matt did, Matt, Matt's my kind of technical kind of guy. He's got all these great um, experimental technical kind of ideas. So he um, sampled a whole lot of high frequency sounds in the um, from all the kind of surveillance cameras in the Melbourne CBD and all the kind of advertising. Oh, wow. <laughs> all the, all the, because they're all sending data around in, in frequencies yeah. way, way above our hearing and all the kind of billboards at train stations and stuff that, and he's, um, and then he's pitch shifted that down into our frequency hearing range. And then we've sampled that and created this drone, drone piece out of it. So that's, that's on the, that's on the album. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm, cu- I'm very curious to hear how those uh, how those uh, data transmission sounds sounds to our ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I'm also working on an album with um, a German musician called Peter Pichler, and he's um, he's a, a kind of a virtuoso at playing the Troutonium. The Troutonium is this 1920s electronic musical instrument that was invented in Germany in the in the late 1920s. And so he's like, Peter's about the only musician in the world who can play this instrument as a virtuoso. Oh, wow. and <laughs> yeah, so he, he came out to play in Melbourne um, in 2019, early so about 18 months ago and we did a performance together with a friend of mine, Ray Howe, on vibraphone and I was on synths and so we're recording the stuff that we wrote together and we're putting that out as an album next year. So that's they're my kind of projects, main things at the moment that are... (laughs) Awesome. That's a... Yeah, that's a lot. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, I assume you've got everything out of the way but just in case... Uh, we're about to wrap it up. And is there anything else you would like to shout out or draw attention to before we do? Um, I don't know. I suppose just check out, I mean, maybe if you don't mind putting a few links to those things in your, in yeah, your notes for the episode. Um, and, yeah, I mean, no, that's, I mean, uh, thanks, thanks for having me, Ben. It's um, been really great chat. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, and, yeah, so guys, please check out uh, everything. Or <laughs> I don't expect everyone to check out everything Nick's mentioned, but uh, if if something uh, piqued your interest, like for example, for me, it was the uh, data transmission frequencies being pitched down into the human hearing range. That's just such a cool idea to me. Um, so I'm definitely interested in checking that one out. And I'll probably also check out the social media sampling stream as well. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on, cool. Nick. Uh, episode twenty-three featuring Nick Wilson. I'm your host, Astro Rain. It's been great. Peace. Thank you. And I'm going to go and listen to Astro Rain now. <laughs>